All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Let's go there. If you got your sword, which I know you all do because you're good Christians, so you brought your weapon. And um, open that up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Or click to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. There's been um, a lot of um, pretty radical stuff that we've heard come out of Solomon's mouth in this book, maybe even stuff that we think um, initially is hard to believe that it's even in the Bible because it's so honest. Um, and um, if you haven't heard, you know, something that, that make, maybe makes you think a little bit sideways or uh, have had a little bit of depression in what you've seen here, um, t- today should make good on that uh, because he just keeps shifting gears um, with um, how miserable the reality is of you and I living on this earth apart from the purpose, meaning, knowledge of God. Like how absolutely uh, bleak that is of a thought. Um, if, if all this that you and I are walking in and breathing in and moving in um, and functioning in and reacting to um, and navigating every single day is all there is, just what is under the sun, and there's nothing else, there's nothing above it, um, there's really not a lot of good news. And that should affect the way that we actually live now um, in light of what's coming. And, and so this is what we're going to look at today, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what's coming And because of what's coming, how we should live now. So verse 1, all this I laid to heart, all of what, everything that's come before, all of his failed life experiments that um, he's endeavored to walk in and to test to find meaning, purpose, satisfaction. I laid all this to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise Their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. What is that? Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go back to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog's better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work 
or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going, period. And then you just kind of like, mic drop right there. Insert mic drop, right? Vintage Solomon, vintage Ecclesiastes, another gear. Um, I'm going to break this section into three parts today because I think he kind of breaks it into three parts. And the first one is this. Life is a bummer and then you die. You got it, right? I mean, we're, gonna not, we're not going to do the bumper sticker version, but like we're going to do that version. You know, uh, We're a child-friendly church here. So life is a bummer. Um, and, and then you die. Uh, this is verses 1 through 3. Actually, it's everything that's preceded this up to this point, really. Um, but that's also what we're going to call this sermon. Um, and I'm going to give you some stats, because I'm really good with stats. I'm really good with numbers. Um, statistically, one out of every one person will die. You guys, are, you guys, are we good with that? Does anyone want to fact check that? If your name is Elijah or um, Enoch then maybe an exception, but one out of one person statistically uh, will, will die. I mean, if, if there's a harsh truth that cannot be undone or fixed or corrected by us in life, it's death. It's the reality of our mortality, that, that we all have an expiration date, that we all have a shelf life, and, uh, and then we're done. Uh, if there's a most harsh reality to life, it's that death is a predator that will track us down. There, there's nothing we can do to outrun it or escape it. Like, it, it will find us. We cannot outrun it no matter how much kale we eat, which I don't. So, No matter how many medicines or vaccines we take, no matter how many diets we try, no matter how many Botox injections we receive, I don't get those either. No matter how many miles we run or bike, no matter how clean the air is that we breathe or how thick the masks are that we wear or how many workout programs we do, we cannot outrun death. We cannot escape it. Um, I, I had a, I mean, I, I know we all have examples of this, right? Um, that it has little to do with our efforts, even though our efforts are wise. God has given us brains to, to use, right? But I was reminded of this again a couple years ago when a good friend of mine named David Thoman um, dropped dead while, one day while he was working out in his gym that he owned. So uh, David was a, a seminary professor at Western Seminary. He loved Jesus. This was the nature and the sum total of our relationship. We saw each other often, and we got together often because Jesus was everything to both of us. His life was committed to that. But also on the side, this dude was about the most fit guy that you would ever meet. He was 42. He owned a gym. He worked out every day. He was into Krama Gras. Anyone know what that is? Like, just think about how the name sounds. That's how bad it was. Like, just rad. Like, if someone knows this, you don't mess with that person, right? And so he trained people in Kramagra, like, and this dude was just fit. And one day, a couple years ago, he was sitting in his gym, working out, and his heart stopped, and he dropped. No preconditions, no anything. 42. 
And then you've got people like my grandmother who, who ate um, an amount of salt that shouldn't be legal and butter and cream and grease, drank her whiskey all her life, smoked her cigars all her life, and finally went home at the age of 103. She loved rhubarb, yeah. Rhubarb, everything, for sure. She made everything out of rhubarb. Death will find us a lot of times in spite of our efforts, our best efforts. But what Solomon's really digging at here is a little bit deeper than that. Because it, it also doesn't really matter how good you are in life, right? And we talked about this last time I was here. We talked about this whole karma thing, right? How many sacrificial acts you performed, how devout you are to God, how giving you've been to others, how committed you've determined to be with your religion. Death is the great equalizer. Whether you lived well or you lived bad. Either way, it changes its mind for nobody. This is what he's getting at at verses 1 through 3. Solomon's making known to us the truth that your righteousness, your goodness, your holiness on earth will not reward you necessarily here on earth. Amen? I know that's not something you want to amen, but this is truth. We don't follow the one that we follow because of what we think he's going to give us back now in life. We follow the one we follow because of what he's promised. We know it's certain. We know that the glory that is to be revealed, we know that the reward that is to be received is that which we do not yet see. It's yet to come. And we will get to this. There's only one thing that's certain in the end, according to Solomon, for all who live, and it's death. Just like the sun that shines and the rain that falls on the just and the unjust, the wicked and the righteous, death does too. All right, let's pray. Just kidding. (laughs) Have a good day. Solomon um, has already shared the outcomes of his failed life experiments concerning the pursuit of purpose and meaning in things that are under the sun. And now he's magnifying their vanity by focusing on how those things end. So again, it goes from bad to worse. He's making known the truth that we spend our lives grasping at vapor, and then our life ends like one. And, and, and what he's really doing here is he's keying in on how the knowledge of that reality of death can make what we're doing now seem even more meaningless than it already does sometimes. That's, re- that's really what he's doing. And, and because this is true, death in many ways seems to render life even more senseless because in the end it cancels out everything that we do or attempt to do or have done, good or bad, It ends the same way. If the end is empty, the means, the road there is even more so. So so life's a bummer, and then we die. He he makes this depressing truth known in verse 3. He says, where, where he says that it's an evil, it's an evil, that whether you're good or bad, righteous or wicked, clean or unclean, no matter how you live, the same event happens to all. That is the great evil in it all. Right, and, and this is the bad news that mankind must grapple with. This is this is the reality, right? This is why karma or your religious attempts cannot help you, ultimately. 
Have you ever considered how incredible it is that the Bible actually tells us why death exists? You ever thought about that? Like, that's actually an incredible thought. That this book spends so much time talking in detail about this thing called death. I don't know of any other book that does it. Not like this. That it actually has the nerve to give us clear, lengthy, articulated explanations as to why death exists. Why it's even a thing. Have you ever thought about that? And here's what it says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Goes on to tell us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The penalty that we owe as a result of missing the mark that we were supposed to hit is death. It's our life. That's why death exists. And and that because that's the payment which we owe for our sin, it's appointed for all men to die and then the judgment according to their sin. That's Hebrews 9.27. This is the bad news. And this is why death exists. So the next time you have an atheistic buddy that tries to use this against you as to why God can't exist and why if he does exist he isn't good is because death exists, this is pretty helpful for your case. This is why death exists. And God is the one that gives this to us. But whether you believe this or not, death cannot be denied. It cannot be escaped by anybody, according to Solomon, by anybody. And if this is the end of the story, life is a bummer and then we die. If this is the story, then it also follows that number two, verses four through six, living maybe has a slight advantage over dying. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, if, like if this is a bummer and this is a bummer, like which one's the better bummer? Which, which one's, like which one would I prefer? Right? And, and if there's nothing else afterward, and this is it, that we have a, a small window to, to feed this, then like this one probably edges this one out slightly. You know what I mean? Life's a little better um, than, than death. After all, a living dog is better than a dead lion, right? I mean, we all know that, right? No. You guys are like, what the heck, you know? What is this fortune cookie stuff that he, like, this, this is a proverb, all right? A living dog is better than a dead lion. It doesn't make sense to you and I because we are Americans, that love and idolize and worship our dogs more than anything else in this world. You know what I'm saying? Especially in the Pacific Northwest. We have golden dogs instead of golden calves. I went to, I went to Portland one time, I'll, I'll never forget this, and drove down the boulevard and looked off to the left seeing a family coming at me on the sidewalk. They were walking on the sidewalk on the other side of the road. It was a husband, a wife, the wife's holding an infant in one arm and pushing a stroller with the other, and the dog is in that stroller. <laughs> like, that, that's how we are with dogs in the Pacific Northwest. That's how we view them. In this culture, in this day and age, they did not. In fact, it was completely the opposite 
The way that you and I might look at a rat, like a scavenger that's just a dirty, dirty creature that goes around spreading disease and just eating the most disgusting stuff that no other creature will eat, that was a dog in their culture. That's how dogs were. They were just scavengers. They were the lowest creatures that existed in their society. That's why if, so, if you called somebody a dog, then it was on. Like that, that was like, that was the worst thing that you could call somebody was a dog back then. It was not a compliment. It wasn't a good thing. A lion, on the other hand, they were the other end of the spectrum. They were top notch. They were the creature to be. No one was better than a lion. No one was revered more than a lion. No one was worshipped animal-wise more than a lion. It was all about the lion. And so that's why we have this split here in what's being said. Um, and, and, and so, like, the lion was awesome no matter what, right? Like, the lion could do no wrong in their eyes. But the dog was despised no matter what. He was wrong no matter what. And having said that, you, maybe you understand a little bit of what Solomon's saying now. Even this most despised, lowest creature, at least if he has life, is better than the one we know is the greatest if he doesn't. Does that make sense? Even for the most pitied, despicable creature, at least he still has hope, Solomon says. In what? I don't know. In not being dead, I guess, is kind of what he hints at, right? The hope, the hope that maybe he would have another breath or another sunset or another meal or another pleasurable experience, something like that. But the dead, none of the above. They don't get any of that ever again. No chance to leave their mark on the world any longer. They're forgotten, verse 5. No chance to love or be loved any longer, verse 6. And all they have left now is to cease to exist. And, and by the way, it's at this point that it should be mentioned that the description of death that, that Solomon um, is, is using here um, is not actually um, an accurate depiction of death. Um, he's simply playing along with the world's perception of what death is, according to them, okay? Which is just an unconscious state. It's like soul sleep. It's nothingness. So it's the idea that, that uh, after we live, we just curl up with our f- favorite blankie and just take an eternal nap. We just, we just cease to exist, which... If you read the rest of your Bible, you know couldn't be farther from the truth. That's extremely hopeful thinking of what death is for the godless one. And it's not true. And we'll get a little more into that as we go here. Having said that, to play along, Solomon's playing along, um, if dying is to, is to cease to exist, existing has a slight advantage over dying, right? Over not existing, which brings us to number three, which is found in seven through ten. Live well while you die. Or, yeah, live well while you can. Live well while you're dying. Right? Since this is all we have, we might as well make the most of it. Right? And, and I think some of you are like, like a, yeah, I think that's right. 
Like, I'm not sure if this is a trick or not. Like, I, I think that's right. And some of you are like, like, yeah, I can totally get behind that one. That's, you know, that, that's, that's good. Uh, but, but maybe you wouldn't get behind it the way that the world would get behind it. Okay? Because the world would mean it to get what they can, while they can, however they can, because it's me time. It's me time. I gotta get it while I can. The window of self-indulgence and pleasure-seeking is short. So the name of the game for the one who lives apart from God, the goal is to gratify the most important object, me, by feeding it other objects. Right? And this is, this is really how we see the world functioning around us. This is really all we're looking at. Is people in one form or another, whatever that looks like for them, feeding the most important object in life with other objects. So, so the preeminent question becomes, what can this do for me? It's all about self-satisfaction. Anybody here ever heard of the word hedonism? We have John Piper fans. That's probably why. Hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. But even more than that, Hedonism is a desire to increase pleasure so as to decrease pain. I'll say that again. Hedonism is a desire to increase pleasure so as to decrease pain. In other words, it's self-medicating. It's just a lifestyle of self-medicating. From what? From, I don't know, whatever. Like Like take your pick, right? If you just live under the sun. Loneliness, success... Loss, depression, fame, fear, like any of it, all of it, you name it. But, but there's really no greater reason to give your life over to a practice of hedonism than in light of the coming inevitability of death. This is the greatest reason to. That's a very good reason to self-medicate. And for the man who lives apart from God and therefore has no hope, but only in today, that which is under the sun, this is right thinking. This is his best option. This is exactly what he should be doing. If all is vanity, death is inevitable, then, um, and nothing, nothing follows what we have here, it would be stupid not to make the most of it right now, not to just take a full run at this thing. To live your, as Mr. Olstein says, best life now. Right? That's hedonism. This is in large part how the world lives, thinks, functions, all driven by the biggest idol that they have, which is tough, self. self. But if we're not careful, you and I, as Christians, we can find ourselves falling into the same trap, living the same way, functioning the same way through life. This is where we must honestly examine ourselves and keep ourselves in check with the freedoms and the liberties that God has given us in Christ because he has given us freedoms and liberties in Christ. Because in our sinfulness, we can actually, if we're not careful, start justifying all kinds of things that aren't God things at all. We can can also start taking all kinds of things that are God things and twisting them, making them, approaching them, using them, in a bad way, to where they become us things 
Pastors do this all the time. I can fall into this trap, and I have fallen into it, where I can take this thing that is such a privilege and such an honor that God has called me to and use it in ways, whether it's my thinking or motives, towards my own end, for my own benefit. I'm just being honest with you right now. There's a lot of reasons why some of you come to church on Sundays and the motives aren't always right. Like we can take good things and if we're not careful, we can twist them. We can convince ourselves of about anything if we want it bad enough and we will be willing even to twist scripture in order to get it. I know that's just me, but if you were to do that, you would be able to. I don't know of any one verse that I've heard as a pastor, stripped more out of its context by Christians to justify sinful, selfish behavior more than, some of you are trying to guess it right now. What is that verse? You're like, which one do I use? <laughs> First Timothy 4.4. 4. Any of you know what that one is? You're like, that's not the one I was thinking of. It says this, everything created by God is good. It goes on. Nothing is to be rejected. Oh, we love that part. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So there it is. There's the magic wand. That's all that we need to do to take this thing that we want really bad, that we know is bad for us, and we're going to use it bad for our own gain. But that's all we need to do is actually just acknowledge that it comes from God and then give him thanks, and then it's sanctified. It's fair game. It's clean. I don't know how many times I've heard this used, mostly by my kids, honestly, when they were growing up as teenagers. They loved this one, right? And you'll hear people do it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you provided this house for me and my girlfriend to shack up in. Thank you. Thank you. Praise your name. Right? Thank you for this stinking fat blunt that I'm about to smoke and get high as a kite off of. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. You know what I mean? Like, we'll, like we'll, do it, we'll do it with anything if we want to. And we'll justify ourselves in it. Lost my place. We can elevate, and here, here's what it comes down to. We can actually elevate the gift to a place beyond the gift the giver, leading to idolatry rather than worship. That's what it does. Everything Solomon mentions here in this list, in verses 7 through 10, are good things. They are God things that you and I can very easily make bad things if our heart towards them is wrong. If our heart towards them is wrong. There's another type of hedonism that's talked about and this is by Mr. John Piper. And he calls it Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, delight, and satisfaction in, in the gifts due to the gift giver. So it's actually in the gift giver that we have the enjoyment that we get from the gift. And it's a consciousness of that. Right? The one who's responsible for all good things that you and I enjoy is the focus rather than the object. Right? 
In other words, our primary source of enjoyment is grounded in who did that for us rather than what it does for me. Does that make sense? For the child of God, the good things that we enjoy in this life are not primarily due to the object itself, but due to the one who gave it to us. In other words, for the pleasure seeker, apart from God, the joy of that which is experienced terminates on that thing. That's where it ends, right? On the object, on the relationship, on the feeling, whatever it is. But for the God seeker, the joy of that which is experienced terminates on him, And he never ceases to exist. He's the everlasting one. In other words, one is idolatry, and it is empty. It is empty. And one is worship, and it is transcendent. It goes on. It continues on. Therefore, we have have a joy that that does not expire. Because it's it's, it's not grounded and rooted in that thing that expires. It's rooted rather in the gift giver who has no expiration date. See, see, the gifts become far more enjoyable, far more meaningful, far more valuable due to knowing and enjoying the one who gave them to us. Don't you know that in your own life? Isn't that true? This is why Secret Santa sucks. It's a secret. You know what I'm saying? Like, who did that? I want to know who gave that to me. I want to know who sacrificed in that way for me and and made that gesture and was was thoughtful like that on my behalf. I want to know who did that. When the gift has no known giver, the only value and worth is then only in the gift itself. And it may very well be one that we like. Um, Every year, Pastor Appreciation Month happens, which is next month, by the way coming and and we our office will get filled our desk will get filled with like um cards and and gifts and gift cards and just notes like of of just people saying the raddest things like just appreciating us you know and it's like it's it's such a cool thing but what what does stink is that once in a while actually more than once in a while you'll open those gifts and you'll open those cards with these nice things and they won't even be signed we don't, we don't even know, like, who said that or who did that. And you know what that does at that point? It makes the gift irrelevant. <laughs> All we want to know is the heart that was, who was that that said that, that did that? It changes everything. It changes everything to know the one who was so good, who has chosen to bless us. I want to, so next month, sign your card, all right? Like, I, I want, I don't want my enjoyment to, to terminate on your kind words or your gift, <laughs> right? I want it to stretch far beyond that to the one who gifted me with it. And, of course, you guys see the difference, right? See, hedonism pursues the gifts for its own end. Christian hedonism enjoys the gifts because God is its origin and end. And the reason it's important for us to understand this is not only because we can tend towards the sin of idolatry, even as Christians, in life things, but also because we as Christians can tend towards the sin of gift denial. And some of you are looking at me like, you made that up. Yes, I did. 
Yes, I did. We can tend towards the sin also of gift denial. Denying him, the gift giver, of the glory due to him as a result of his goodness towards us. See, you and I don't only have um, um, maybe a, a, a propensity or a temptation towards prosperity gospel. That's not the only thing that's being taught across the globe. There's this other thing that's being taught called the poverty gospel, which means that you can't have anything. You can't enjoy anything. And it's false. You just got to roll around in the dirt and resemble Jesus as much as you can, a man who had no place to lay his head, right? All the while beating yourself up and taking beatings. No. I, I grew up with that impression as a kid, and, and like, I'm not going to blame it on my parents because they didn't give it to me. But I remember just the, 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 the general tone that came out of the pulpit in the church that I grew up with in was very fundamental. And, and so, like, the conclusion that I came to as a young kid with the Christian message was in order to be a Christian, you have to be miserable in life. You can't have any fun. You can't do anything that's actually enjoyable or receive anything that's enjoyable, or take pleasure in anything, or delight in anything. It's all about this self-denial, and then God will not deny you, but accept you. Just don't enjoy anything. And it's simply not true, guys. Our Bibles do not teach that at all. They don't teach that if you come to Jesus, he's going to make everything fantastic in your life. But it does teach that if you come to Jesus, you will have life abundant. And that doesn't mean that you will have an abundance. But it means that as we go through life, we can enjoy the things that God has put in life to his glory and not feel guilty about it. And, it, and they're even more abundant gifts because we know who the gift giver is. Right? They're not, they're not disconnected. They're not just a thing that feeds us, but they're there for our enjoyment or as a result of the heart of the one who's behind them. We can do that. Christians should be the most joyful people on this earth. The most joyful. And it's not because our health is great and our bank account is deep, right? Or our Mercedes is in the garage. It's not because of those reasons. It's because of no matter what our circumstance is, we know the giver of all good things, no matter what. He's ours, and we're his, and nobody can separate that and change that. Right? And so we should, we should have some serious joy as we walk through life, regardless of what our circumstance is, regardless of what's going on around us and what our life looks like and what the headlines look like and what the world looks like, right? Because we, we, we know the most good one who is over all things that are good. I'm lost. Solomon says in verse 7, God has already approved what you do. What does that mean? That's what it means. That, that these are fair game. That it's okay for you to enjoy food. It is okay for you to enjoy drink. Some of you. Not all of you. Some of you should not. Right? It's okay for you to enjoy an intimate relationship with another life partner. 
it's okay for you to enjoy some, some clean duds, man. Dress up once in a while. Go out. Like, I, I know that usually when it's talking about being clothed in white in the Bible, it's usually like we're talking about purity. Um, I don't think he's doing that here in the middle of this other list. Okay, I think he's talking about it's okay to put on some clean clothes and take a shower and bathe in oil and smell good once in a while. That's okay. It's okay. We want some of you to. (laughs) God is the author and the originator of these things for you and I to enjoy, not worship. Enjoy. The work of your hands, your job, your hobbies, your accomplishments, they're there to be a blessing too. Not an idol, a blessing. When we keep in step with him, worshiping him, taking pleasure in him, delighting in him, enjoying him, we will rightfully enjoy and take pleasure in that which is from him. This is Christian hedonism. When our satisfaction is most in him, we become rightly satisfied in what is from him. And let me say this. I mean, I guess I already kind of did. Do you realize that everything that you and I enjoy in this life, and even on a daily basis, everything that we take pleasure in, is just a shadow of his goodness? A shadow of who he is? A shadow of what he's really like. Just camp on that for a second. Your marriage, your kids, your food, your drink, your accomplishment, your intimacy, your laughter, all these things are a shadow of who he is and what he has in store for those who love him. A shadow. C.S. Lewis said, we live in the shadow lands. This is what he's talking about. If you like this sometimes, if sometimes you're like, this is, this is so good, I don't want this to end, it's no, Christian. It, is, it, it can't hold a candle to what it is coming for you. Every pleasure we enjoy now is a shadow of the ultimate reality of what will be. Even God's shadows are good. That's what it means. Even his shadows are good pleasurable, enjoyable. We live enjoying the shadows now because of the nature and character of the shadow caster. What will it be like to not be in the presence of his shadows anymore, but of his substance, of him? Um, He ends here with verse 10, actually we're ending with verse 10, which is a horrible verse to end with. Like, I don't even know why I did that, but we're doing it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shoal to which you are going. Pre-Jesus, everybody, good or bad, went to shoal. It means the grave. There was not yet a sinless life lived and a sacrifice made on the cross for sins and a resurrection and conquering of death followed by an ascension into the throne room which punched a hole to the throne room to allow others into the throne room. This is all we had at this time. 
everybody went here. And you can find this in the Bible. You'll find it in places like when Jesus taught, taught us about what hell is like, um, Lazarus and the rich man, that they were both in the same warehouse, just separate compartments, separate places in that same place. Right? And so this is a true statement. This is where it ends for everybody. Right? And, and this is actually, um, this is a horrible verse. I mean, if you just look at it and read it for what it says, um, like that's just that's just bleak. That's like as bleak as it gets, right? There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, I don't know what happens in your mind when you read a verse like that, but here's what it happens in my mind, when I read a verse like that, how completely significant is it that Jesus came? How significant is it that Jesus came? How significant was the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How significant and necessary was it that he died and rose and ascended to the right hand of God? where he's advocating for us right now, right? It is so significant. It is so significant that you and I can read this verse that Solomon put down here this morning and say, no, thank you. Not for me. Not for me. I'll pass. Because I have Jesus. I'm headed for the promised land. Not Sheol. I'm headed to the promised land. My pleasure and satisfaction and joy and hope is in Jesus. And because it's in Jesus, life has meaning, but the next one has even more. You know what I'm saying? And so Solomon can say things like, life's a bummer and then we die. But the gospel says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know what I'm saying? He can say things like, ah, it might be a little bit better to live than to die, but the gospel says to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he can say, um, you know, you better get all you can while you can because the window's closing and then nothing is after that, but the gospel says to live is Christ, to die is gain. There is something. See, for you and I who know Christ, this is as bad as it gets for us. You know what I'm saying? But for those who are not in Christ, this is as good as it gets for them. This is why you and I need to get busy with the message that we have. We need to be gospel carriers of life and not death because people every day are dropping into eternal death. And it doesn't look like this. It is very conscious state, not an unconscious one. A very, that's what makes it so miserable is that it's conscious. Like, people are going to know exactly where they are and exactly why and exactly what's happening to them. And I don't want that on my worst enemy, and you shouldn't either. This is why the church of Jesus exists with the gospel. is because this is people's reality and destination every single day. And how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? That's you and I. You and I carry the good news of Jesus Christ, which they need. And they need it because for them, what's going on right now in this life is as good as it will ever get. For you and I, our best life 
is yet to come. It is yet to come. This is not it. There is so much more awaiting us. There, it, it, it is so quantum beyond anything that we can possibly imagine or understand that the guy that actually visited the place couldn't even speak of it when he got back. He didn't even know how to describe it and put it into words. It's so unspeakable. And we get this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that for the one who has no hope beyond this life, this is the best it gets. But for those who are in Christ, this is the worst that it gets. I have this, um, I have this, um, I don't know. It's written in pen on a whiteboard over my desk at home, and I just love it. The first time I saw it, I remember um, it just sent chills down my spine because um, we, especially as Americans, can tend to be very spoiled in our thinking um, and um, kind of babies in ways and compared to the church throughout history and the rest of the world. And um, this dude named Robert Murray said this, and I look at this every day when I go into my office. Do you mourn over bodily pain and poverty and sickness and troubles of the world? Do not murmur. The time is short. If you have believed in Christ, these are all the hell that you will ever bear. This is all the hell that you will ever bear if you are in Christ. If you have Him. This is why it's so important. Remember, remember this as you watch the headlines. Remember this as you watch people that you love suffer and get sick and die. Remember this as you pass through trials and hardships and pain, depression, doubt, uncertainty, loneliness, sorrow. This is the worst it gets for you, believer, because the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty, the resurrection is certain. This is everything that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's, he's, he's doing a defense of, apologetics on, the resurrection of Jesus. And everything hinges for you and I as Christians on the church of Jesus Christ, on the resurrection. If the resurrection did not happen, I feel like this is an Easter sermon right now all of a sudden. If the resurrection did not happen, what are we doing? There is no reason to be here doing any of it. We might as well turn the light. Everything hinges on the resurrection. And you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? If Jesus did not raise from the dead, we should eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's exactly what Solomon's talking about here. There is no reason for us to do any of it. But you know what? You cannot go over to Jerusalem today and visit the garden tomb and see a body in it. Because there isn't one. It's empty. He vacated the tomb. He is at the right hand of God. And because of that truth, you and I will be too. Our bodies may see death and may see the tomb, but we will not. We will see Him. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Right? Why? Because of what Jesus did. And so we can read a passage like this and go, gosh, this is so miserable for someone who's on the wrong side of this. But for someone who's on the right side of it, no thank you. You and I need to take the truth and the hope that we have outside these rooms. People need it. And the only reason you and I have what we have is not because we're good, but because he's good. 
which is why we're taking communion right now. That's what communion says when we approach the table. He's good. He's my righteousness. He's my resurrection, my life, my hope. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for every good gift that we fail to acknowledge on a daily basis that is a result of your goodness and your heart towards us, your loving kindness. Help us to see it more. Help our worship to increase as a result of seeing it more. And thank you for the greatest gift, your only begotten son, to do a work to substitute, to stand in on our behalf. Our righteousness is only in that, and we acknowledge that today, and we thank you for it. Amen.